Building a creative career is like building a machine. There are a million moving parts, and the components you choose and the raw materials you put in will determine the machine's output. You've got to feed it, but you've also got to be on the outside maintaining the machine. It needs oil, and sometimes there are parts that break, and you've got to swap them out. Maybe the old part is obsolete, and you've got to MacGyver up a new one. It's your machine. It's on you to feed it and maintain it and control it. But you're not alone. There are thousands, millions out there who have their own machines, large and small. So when you need help, you can find it. You might need experts. You might need an assistant to schlep the oil. Or maybe just the advice of other creative machine enthusiasts like yourself. But if this is what you want to be doing, you've got to keep the machine functioning day and night your whole life. Let it break down, and it's way harder to get it started again. This is the central activity of your creative life. I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, Episode 9. Make it work. Day breaks in the east, and a mighty army rises. Not an army marching to the deep and desolating roar of shells, but a mighty army of builders who go forth accompanied by the whistles from America's greatest factories. If this is your first time listening, on this show we go through the whole process of creating a story from conception to final polish. You can, of course, listen in any order you please, but you might want to go back and start at episode one. This is the last episode of season one, and I wanted to end with something a little different. You've made stories. Maybe you've made lots of them. But that's not all there is to leading a creative life. You know you can do the work. But how can you fit that work into a real life? How can the work that feeds your soul also put literal food on your table? Over the course of the years, I've encountered creative professionals who have put their lives together around their work in so many different ways. That's one of the hardest things about making creative work your career. There is no one way to do it. And every year, some old ways die, and some new ways are born. The rules are constantly rewritten, and it happens so fast. It's scary, even paralyzing. But you can make it work. Today, I'm talking to three professionals in very different kinds of careers. Jacob Lewis produces the podcast Neighbors and is one of the founders of the podcast collective called The Herd. Dave Kellett is a web cartoonist and filmmaker best known for his strips Sheldon and Drive. And Kelly Sue DeConnick is a comics writer, the author of Bitch Planet and Pretty Deadly, among many other things, as you'll hear. We'll talk about how they work and how they make a living. So my name is Jacob Lewis. I am the creator and host of the show Neighbors um, and founder slash founding member of the audio collective The Herd. Jacob contacted me soon after Out on the Wire came out about getting copies for his collective of podcasters, The Herd, which is spelled H-E-A-R-D, by the way. I was immediately intrigued by the idea of a collective, that there were six independent producers making their own individual shows, but that they pooled their resources. I've always been an independent producer of comics, and the lack of any systematic way to get help has always been a major problem for me and others like me. And it turns out, Jacob felt that isolation keenly. It's a big part of his story. I was working a 
job in a custom cabinetry and furniture shop. It turned into a factory job where I was spraying lacquer eight hours a day, five days a week. And it was incredibly isolating and hot and sawdust everywhere and lacquer fumes. And I had ear protection and a, you know, a mask on and eye protection. And I just felt like I was dying in this isolation bubble. And so I started to listen to all of these podcasts just to, like, not die. <laughs> and there was a This American Life episode about the first little intro story was about Mind That Bird, the Kentucky Derby horse that like went from the very end of the pack to win like incredibly it was just like what an upset and when I heard that I just like felt so much emotion um, because I was just so fed up with my job I felt like an underdog I felt like I had potential that I was just like squandering away and I thought you know what I could I could like come from behind and make it like I believe in myself I think and I think this might be it, actually, like radio. And unlike every other person who probably had a driveway, I mean, respirator moment with this episode, Jacob actually understood it as a sign and took action. He applied to the Transom Story Workshop, the famous crash course in radio production and reporting that we discussed with lead instructor Rob Rosenthal in episode eight, and he got in. After I left Transom, there was this huge void because it was two months of intense collaboration, community, inspiration, scrutiny, um, and then nothing. I'm back in Nashville. I have a little bit of gear, a lot of heart, and like no interaction. I just started to get more and more frustrated and felt isolated and alone and dark. And, um, and then when I went to Third Coast... The Third Coast International Audio Festival, a biannual gathering of narrative audio producers in Chicago. That's when I was like meeting all of these people that were in the exact same boat as me. That I thought, man, this person is really talented. This person is really creative. This person has like great chops and like is alone and doesn't have the resources that they need. And it's just like, you know, a radio mountaintop experience. Um, and so that's when I started to reach out. He first got in touch with Jonathan Hirsch of the show Arrivals, and then the two of them identified four more independent podcast producers they wanted to work with, scattered all over North America. Vanessa Lowe of Nocturne, Rob McGinley-Myers of Anxious Machine, Marlo Mack of How to Be a Girl, and Tally Abacassis of First Day Back. And so just having a group of artists that um, see radio that way, like see it as art. There was just that energy that I was wanting to have again. I wanted to grow and be a successful entity. Um, I felt like I had a better chance with others than I did on my own, like just as a brand. So did it live up to your expectations? Oh, it's it's exceeded everything I've ever wanted. Um, it's such an amazing group of really talented people that I really trust and that give honest feedback. Um, and I've just learned so much. I've learned basic things like time management from uh, Jonathan. I've learned um, like just resilience from Vanessa. I've learned a lot about editing from Rob. Um, Marlo is just like amazingly intimate and honest in her show. And that's really pushed me. 
I don't know. It's everything. It's it's from like the human stuff to the business stuff to the craft stuff. It's like all there. So how do you actually, how does it work? What do you do? You just ask for what you need. So if if I need an edit or if I need an idea or, you know, whatever it is, I it's my responsibility to come to the group and ask for what I need. And everybody does the same. And when possible, you know, somebody steps up when they feel like, oh, I can offer this. Um, and it just works. I think it's super smart. Like, this is one of the things when I'm telling people, go get an edit. It's like, who are they going to go to? You know, it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. Yeah. How to get the feedback and advice you need has always been my biggest challenge. But it wasn't my biggest question. I was thinking about organizations like Radiotopia, also a collective of independent shows. But they've run several six-figure Kickstarter campaigns and have a deal with PRX, the public radio exchange. There's some kind of structure in place there behind the scenes to handle legal matters and money. So I wanted to know, how does the herd deal with money? We're not a business. Um, we're a community uh, made up of six independent businesses. I handle my money, they handle their money, um, and it's proven to work. Like as, as we figure out different things in the business sphere of this, um, we share that knowledge and maybe certain relationships with one another. Everybody has different ideas about what success looks like for their show. Some of us just, we have day jobs and are okay with that and want this to be an outlet, um, an artistic outlet. And so success is just getting the message out there. Um, From some of us, it's just like sustainability, like not looking to become super rich. It's just like to be able to do what we love and maintain that. And I think for some of us, like really want to grow kind of a, a, a very large brand and have our hands in a lot of different things and um, like use our podcast as a platform to for bigger things. But then it seems to me, if you project forward, if you all meet your goals, mm-hmm. um, your own definitions of success, will that mean that the herd is torn apart? Uh, I mean, this is something that comes up from time to time. Um, anybody is free to leave at any time. Just be upfront about it. I work hard and that helps you. You work hard and that helps me. Um, and we help one another. That's it. But in terms of like my own show, I, yeah, I just want to be able to make a living like I'd love to be able to pay a team of just people that were just about my show, um, working for my show. Like that's all I want. <laughs> I want to be able to quit my part-time job and you know sustain my family with this work, explore my city and create things. A lot of us artists, we have exactly this sort of dream. We simply want to make our work and want that work to support us and our families. And some of us would love to be able to pay a small team to help make that work happen. It's an extremely reasonable dream, yet far out of reach for most of us. It takes preparation, planning, and working towards a goal. It takes actually identifying what the goal is. It takes having a business model with the potential to produce the necessary revenue. Jacob is near the beginning of his career, and so I wanted to know, what did he see as a path going forward? Because place is very important to me, I would love businesses and institutions that um, are committed to this place and fostering um, this region 
to align with me and support me financially um, with underwriting um, or sponsorship. When I before I went to Transom and I was doing my podcast, I was writing down a list of like four sponsors that I would love to have. Like these are the dream for me. If I got this, I have reached it. And two of those on my list, one was Yazoo, this brewery that I just absolutely love. And then this burrito place in my neighborhood that I absolutely love. And both of them are sponsors. And the brewery, which I thought, like, there's no way that'll ever happen. Um, They actually contacted me. So sponsorship. Advertising, essentially. This is probably the most common business model for a podcast right now. I'm laying groundwork with a station right now um, because one of my issues right now is space. I'm talking to you from a, a fairly echoey room right now. Um, that, and I have two dogs that can be loud. And, and so if the station offers me some studio space, um, that would be huge. There are a lot of different models. I've, I've reached out to a lot of different producers who have different relationships with different stations and they all look different. Um, it's the wild west and everybody's figuring it out. And so I just pitched them what I wanted. Um, and I'm waiting back to hear an offer, but they've told me that they're going to make a counteroffer. I I really want to do some really awesome live events that really bring in people from the region. Partnership with the station. Live events. Other members of the herd are starting new audio businesses and working on securing funding from public media. They've considered crowdfunding. It's a scramble to figure all this out. But the great thing is they've got each other. If they've got an idea, they have a group to run it by and test it out. If they need collaborators on a project, they've got that. But the reason each of them was invited to the collective in the first place was that they all were already doing good work on their own. None of it would do any good without that willingness to go out on the wire over and over again. It's not going to happen overnight either. Um, You just got to make the next thing, make the next thing. What he's done differently that has amplified his reach and accelerated his growth, both creatively and as a business owner, is to reach out and ask for help and to offer help in exchange. To open himself up to others in a way most of us never dare to. And he's been lucky to find collaborators who are as generous and open as he is. The biggest kind of comfort to me is to know, like, you're not alone. There's, this is not new territory for the human experience at all. Uh, at least a certain type of creative type thinks that they're unique and special and alone and the only person that's gone through these like crazy ups and downs and emotions and thinking that like they're so good at what they do and then the next minute thinking they're just worthless and everything they make is worthless. That's not new. You are not special in that regard. That is a common to the human experience. And once you avail yourself to others in a meaningful and vulnerable way, that you, others that you trust, you will find that um, you will you will find strength and encouragement and community in a way that uh, will encourage you and and grow you. Jacob built his creative machine with the help and advice of all his classmates and teachers at the Transom Workshop, and now his herd colleagues. If he has a breakdown or needs a part, he's got a pit crew to get him rolling again fast.
my name is Dave Kellett. I'm a cartoonist out of Los Angeles, uh, and I do two strips, the science fiction comic strip Drive and the um, kind of newspaper-style comic strip Sheldon. I met Dave at the Angoulême International Comics Festival last January, where he'd come to present his comics documentary, Stripped. We fell into conversation, and I was just fascinated to hear about his enormous inventiveness and creativity when it came to coming up with new ways to get paid for his creative work. I've been dying to interview him ever since. He started out in the late 90s. He was a grad student, dreaming of becoming a syndicated newspaper cartoonist. He sent off package after package of submissions of his strip Sheldon to the syndicates, but no bites. And I thought, well, you know what, I'll put these online to, uh, to share with friends. And um, what I noticed as I learned how to figure out analytics online is that, oh, the first week there was 30 people. Okay, that's friends and family that I had emailed. And then the next week it was, oh, 50 people. And then maybe a month or two later it was 100 people. And then a couple months after that it was 500 people. And I was like, wow, this is, this is interesting. But, you know, at that point in 98, 99, there was, there was virtually no way to make a living online. So uh, it was entirely just a hobby for me while I um, got started, you know, or as I thought, getting into the newspaper business. In the early 2000s, though, things started to shift online. And bit by bit, Dave figured out a whole series of approaches to making money on Sheldon. Among other things, he ran ads on his site. Sheldon, for me, was very... Uh, uh, easy to figure out how to make a living from. So Sheldon is more of a traditional daily comic strip uh, newspaper format. Uh, although it varies a lot, it's most normally you know four panels, strip format, uh, color, and recognizable loved characters, that kind of thing. Traditionally, newspaper strip comics are supported by the ads. Right, right, yeah. right, absolutely. And so, and Sheldon was that too. But Sheldon also had book collections. I would basically do two book collections every year, one around Christmas and one around Comic Con. And uh, those were a, a huge income source for me. And then I had a little bit of code, a little bit, a little algorithm underneath each comic strip that if you said, uh, okay, the strip went up at, at midnight, and if it's 12.05 and you like, the, like to buy the original for the strip, just click here. And then after that original sold, the code would change so that anybody that wanted to buy a print of that strip could buy a print of it. And, and that can only really be done if strips are sort of standalone value, you know, like if, if it has a punchline or a joke that appeals to so-and-so or such-and-such. But then in 2009, Dave started working on his new strip, Drive, a science fiction story told not in four-panel strips, but full pages. And those pages didn't sell as well. Because it's a long-form story, um, it's, it's less of a kind of thing you would want to hang in your house or frame. So that income stream went away. And then because the strip was being told in page uh, installments week by week, um, the books came out slower. So the book income kind of fell away. And then all the things that a daily comic strip had in terms of T-shirt sales or poster sales or sticker sales, all the sort of bumper sticker kind of jokes that a, a comic strip can create, um, the sci-fi strip didn't have. So I just, I didn't know, even though I had figured out a system with Sheldon, I didn't know how to do it with um, Drive. So it was only ever making me, you know, five or $6,000 a year, um, which is lovely. It was a wonderful side hobby and, and I enjoyed doing it for me, um, but it was not the kind of thing you could make a living off of. But Drive was the work he really wanted to be concentrating on. So even though he'd had a working model for years, he suddenly had to go out looking for a new approach. Any six-month period that you're working online, if you go six months out, you'll find, oh, now Twitter exists. Oh, now Tumblr exists. Oh, now uh, Kickstarter exists. Oh, now Patreon exists. And with each one, your business model completely changes. This is what intrigued me about Dave. 
Instead of seeing these new developments and getting scared that what he had was broken, he dove in. Dave's machine is built on interchangeable power sources. He was on internal combustion, and then he switched to lithium-ion batteries. Who knows what's next? The icky factor with advertising has just grown exponentially over the last four years as advertisers have seen their own incomes drop and have used more and more desperate measures in their own advertising. I had seen uh, a couple of uh, web cartoonists, I think it was Zach Wienersmith and Jeff Jacks of uh, SMBC Comics and of uh, Questionable Content, and um, they put their comics up on uh, Patreon and were suddenly making, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars a month uh, from their backers. And I was like, oh my God, this completely changes the way we can do things. If this model can be made to work, I would love to get rid of ads on my site and just have the sort of micropayment system that Scott McCloud always talked about finally work, you know, where people could kick in a quarter or 50 cents or a dollar and um, they could support the art they loved. And um, to Patreon's uh, great credit, they figured out like, hey, the Kickstarter model works really well for a single individual project. Now let's take that and make it for long-term projects, like someone who's a blogger or a vlogger or a musician or a comics artist or a poet. And so you get paid sort of either on a monthly installment or on a per-creation uh, installment, so a new music video or a new comic. And um, so I tried it out. And slowly but surely, Drive has gone from being my side hobby that only made you know, a few hundred dollars a month or a few thousand dollars a year to um, maybe becoming my main income source and maybe becoming the main focus of my career in the next couple of years going forward. So um, it's been a, a complete game changer for me. And not just a game changer in terms of supporting the kind of work he wants to be doing. I mean, the dream of most artists is that their audience could somehow support them directly, not via this weird transaction of paying some totally unrelated third party via views or visits or clicks on ads, and then being paid some tiny percentage of what that other company makes on that traffic. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Around the same time, filmmaker Fred Schroeder asked Dave to take part in a project he was putting together. And then I took him out to lunch about a week later and I said, you know what, I've been thinking about it and I'd like to have a counterproposal for you. What if we sat down with a bunch of cartoonists right now? Um, because both Fred and I love comics. We talk comics all the time. And I said, we're at a really interesting point in, in comics right now. And I said, you know, a lot of people of many decade careers are going out of work because their newspaper model is absolutely breaking down. I said, we have to capture this moment in time where some of these 60, 70, 80-year-olds have no way of replicating their old income. And at the same time, new careers aren't starting at all in print. And yet, there's this whole generation of cartoonists that are making a go of it online. Stripped was the documentary they created together. And it, too, came about in some ways because neither Dave nor Fred felt the need to sit around waiting for permission. And we did a couple Kickstarters for it. Um, and I, I think between the two of them, we raised, like, uh, I might be wrong here, but like 180000 or 200000 to finish the movie. Um, and then, of course, the big uh, boon to both of us was getting the first ever recorded interview with Bill Watterson of Calvin and Hobbes. And, um, and the movie just came together in a really lovely way. I mean, neither one of us had made a documentary before, so we were sort of, uh, you know, hesitant to say, oh, this is going to be a surefire winner. We, we were learning as we were going. But um, there was a lot of joy in making the film and a lot of laughter. And um, it really ended up being a really nice love letter to comics, especially just newspaper comics and their, and their um, heirs, webcomics. 
it does feel half like a love letter to the comic strips. But the other half is more like a wake-up call. The older strip cartoonists are working in a moribund industry. It's still working for them, barely, but this is no longer a path to a stable life as an artist. And the younger artists in the film are mostly web cartoonists, figuring out how to make a living all on their own. In Stripped, you have a section called the Digital Revolution, where everybody reflects on the fact that the new model for strip cartoonists and maybe every kind of narrative artist, really, is to split their time um, between their art and business and handle the business side in a way that, you know, syndicate-based cartoonists didn't have to. You know, they could hand it all over. Right, right. Um, And a lot of cartoonists, I think, expressed, they, they expressed a lot of discomfort about that. In some cases, like, they just didn't want to. In some cases, they didn't feel like they were good at it. And you seem to me somebody who has really found peace with that balance, that that's something that you're like basically okay with. Is that true? Yeah. And I think um, uh, a lot of it has to do with personality. But for me, it comes down to um, control and, and the energy behind wanting to make a career or a project happen. And by that, I mean that you can absolutely work with a publisher and partner with them and you may luck out and you find that the editor and both the publisher are uh, 100% behind you and they have incredible energy and passion for it. Um, But my personal thought is that no publisher, no PR person, no marketing agent, no editor will ever care as much about your career or your project as you do. And it's like a positive feedback loop when you're in control of your own career. I think your art can be empowered when you take control of your own um, of your own life and your own career in a way that ends up making both your career longer and more uh, joy-filled. Um, uh, I mean, I know a lot of people that went with publishers in the early 2000s and, you know, two or three years later, they had to get that Starbucks job again. Or whereas if you if you learn the ropes on business and you learn the ropes on how to incorporate, how to do your taxes, how to pay your sales taxes, how to do all that, it's annoying and it's a pain in the ass. But it, it makes you a better cartoonist in the long run because you can still be a cartoonist five or ten years from now. I love this. You're going to be a better cartoonist or filmmaker or radio producer or writer in five or ten years if you're still doing that thing. And if taking active control of creative business is what it takes to still be doing your thing, then that can be a source of joy. That self-actualizing mindset is not relevant only to the business side of things. It takes will and self-control and desire to make it work. I think some common attributes are of an artist that is going that you know by sheer will alone will will make their career work is the 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 man or woman who when they come home from whatever day job they have or whenever when it's the weekend and they have to create. Um, ultimately, you have to choose this over going out with friends sometimes and and sitting down and playing Halo straight through or watching you know all of this the Star Wars marathon with your friends, or else uh, you won't make it. Because right now there's no editors forcing a web cartoonist to create. There's no publisher saying, hey, here's your deadlines. You have to create those and realize those for yourself. And so the the kind of people that succeed in web comics or in digital distribution have to um, find it within themselves to to create on a regular basis um, without anyone telling them to. So that's a big part of it. And then the other part of it is... um, and there are exceptions to this rule, is that you have to overcome a certain shyness about promoting you or your own work. 
Um, and that's hard to do, especially when you're young and in your early 20s, uh, just starting out, is that you kind of want to be the, the shrinking violet voice online that's like, I mean, I guess I do good work. We are uh, self-isolating people by and large. So I, I understand that it's hard, but I, I think that in the way that um, comics are finding their way to the public now, that's a key part of it is overcoming that shyness and that insecurity that you have. Uh, and sometimes for different artists, that takes a decade to figure out how to do that. It's hard to do. Below both of those is the ability to do the work. And I should have started with that. Um, you have to, you know, you can you can scream from the rooftops online, but if you're not producing good work, you're you're basically just becoming annoying, you know, spam. So doing the work over and over, maintaining enough self-belief that you can continue putting your work out, whether you're getting the notice you hope for or not. None of that is overnight. It's still a five, six, seven-year slog before people start to go, you know what, I would like to throw a little money your way for all this great work. I didn't need to fail in the sense of like trying five different things. I just needed to fail in terms of like no one cared except for my mom the first four or five years, you know. Everyone spends time in the dark forest. I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. And I guess creative loneliness is the is the way you have to describe it. And that's true with any actor or musician or, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, if you think of a musician, they have to play a lot of lonely bar gigs for, for a while, you know, before one of them finally pays off. Um, and so there's just a lot of years of, of kind of in, internally feeling shitty about yourself and whether or not this is wasted time. Um, and you just got to fight through that. My name is Kelly Sue DeConnick. My primary projects at the moment are Pretty Deadly from Image Comics and Bitch Planet from Image Comics. Kelly Sue is also working on television projects and a new still secret comics project. And she just recently ended her very long run writing Captain Marvel. She runs a busy studio with her husband, comics writer Matt Fraction. She's a huge presence for her fans. Her outspoken feminism in person and via her vivid female characters inspires tons of readers to get tattooed with Captain Marvel logos, and especially with the nonconformist symbol from the dystopian Bitch Planet. Kelly Sue has a lot going on, which is why I wanted to talk to her. I've always taken on a lot. I've always gotten a lot done. Sometimes I've been busy rather than productive. Mm Mm-hmm. I've always been a list keeper. I've always been uh, someone who had many projects. I change canvases a lot. Um, I try not to have to do creative work, like heavy-duty creative work, on more than one in the same day. But all that work she puts out comes at the cost of having the opportunity to really focus deeply on one project. I don't think it's the best way for me to work. I think it is the is. It is the bet I've made, um, but I'm not resigned to it. I feel like I can work my way into a better system. I think everything is constantly evolving. Um, You know, I I got to spend a week working almost exclusively on a television show. It was so amazing just to have this one thing. You know, I I was in L.A., I was in, in the writer's room at 8 a.m., back at the hotel at 5, I ate in the room, did some work at night, was back in the room the next morning, and uh, to, just to, to sort of have the luxury of focusing on pretty much doing my makeup, deciding what I was going to order 
and working on the show. That was about all I did. It was it was extraordinary. It was it felt luxurious. The trick for Kelly Sue to get creative work done is to enforce a strict schedule and fiercely guard her writing time. I get up very early. I was up this morning at two. Uh, and then I sit down and I try to get straight to whatever creative work has to be done, whatever writing has to be done. I find if I do that very first thing, I feel like my my interior editor is still asleep and I can get things on the page. I can get the first draft down with less of a struggle than I'll have later in the day. That is when I will get the the best creative work done. But it isn't just Kelly C. working alone. She's responsible for a whole team, and that requires management. They get together every Monday to plan out their week, and that's Kelly Sue, her husband Matt Fraction, their admin kit, Lauren, her in-house editor, her interns, and even whoever else is helping around the house. The core creative work has to get done, and then there's everything else. You'll note there's no time in that day when I'm getting any exercise. Yeah, it's like the planning and the stopping is the tough part. Yeah, self-care is a... Is a a huge issue, you know, and I can counsel other people about it, but it's really hard to make myself do it. Um, especially when, you know, I have this sense of, you know, if I don't get my work done, I'm, there are other people whose incomes are dependent upon, I, I, on, on my starting this domino chain. If I, you know, miss a deadline, they miss a paycheck and that is not acceptable. This is different from what Jacob Lewis built with the Herd Collective. There, he's working solo with a group of five others he can rely on for support. Kelly Sue runs a massive, powerful machine, one that produces enormous amounts of creative work and supports many creative lives. Artists, colorists, letterers, who depend on her production to do their work and to get paid. But the complexity and power of the machine can make it feel like she could lose control of it at any moment. The weight of this responsibility is heavy on her, and it makes it difficult for her to prioritize herself. I think fallow time is incredibly important, and I will, again, I will counsel people, hey, fallow time's really important. You should take some time and go for a walk, or you should take some time and go for... And I know when I'm stuck, I know sitting at the computer is not where it's going to... The answer's not going to come sitting there, uh, and yet I I will continue to stare down the screen as though magically, this time will be different. I think, like, with contemporary American women, we have this thing where, if, you know, if you're, if you're not doing all of it yourself, or maybe I, I should only speak for myself here, but I, I have this thing where if I'm not doing it all myself, I feel somehow as though I have, like, failed. You know, I've got somebody helping with laundry, so I'm somehow a bad mom, you know? Or I'll get annoyed because things get put away in the kitchen and they're not where I want them. Like, well, you can have everything exactly where you want it or you can have a job you love. I did a a post on Tumblr about this at at one point where somebody was like, how do you manage to balance it all? I was like, well, not very well. Well, the question is, what's all? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, all is the business, all is the books, all is the family, all is the 
Christmas shopping and, you know, making Thanksgiving dinner for 16 people and trying to find 15 to 20 minutes a day to practice viola because I'm 45 years old and decided to take up viola for some reason. From the outside, it's clear that Kelly Sue is incredibly productive and successful. But that is just not what it feels like on the inside. Objectively, I know I am successful. I I have a a strong marriage. My children are, are, are safe and healthy and happy and a level of security I didn't have growing up. Uh, which was incredibly important to me to be able to give them that. Uh, I'm working on books that I care about deeply with people who I care about deeply. I own my work, which is also incredibly important to me. Uh, Continuing to evolve as a human, as an activist, um, have had the opportunity to act as a mentor. I've been sober for 15 years, which is a hell of an accomplishment. Um, you know, all of these things objectively I can put down on paper and go, yeah, you know, good job. Like you were killing it, girl. But yeah, it's, it is still on some level. I feel like, you know, no drowning, not waving. This is exactly why we wanted to talk to her. Kelly Sue walks this line between intense creativity and running a creative business. We won't all build the large operation she has, but if we want to make our living a creative work, we all have to walk that same line. And perhaps because her machine is so very powerful and always so close to spinning out of control, Kelly Sue has a lot of insight and wisdom to share with her audience about how to be more productive and how not to let the self-doubt demons take control. She's got these text blasts that she sends out called Bitches Get It Done. Usually what I'm sending out is whatever I need to hear that day. Well, but is it good to send that out into the world and then get response from, because it is the thing you need to hear? Is it like, does it get reflected back to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it's helpful to me in two ways. One, you know, actually typing out that thing I need to hear is, is, a, is a step further than just thinking it. And, and that's a, a, a moment of meditation, really on that idea yeah and then to see community i guess to see that you're sort of not alone in this is always uh, of comfort to me Uh, and i and i'm such a collaborator in my heart jacob said the same thing dave too we're not alone we're not unique these are the things that everyone goes through to make art and to make a life around making that art It's not easy. But if we move in the right direction, maybe it's enough. There's a saying in uh, AA, progress, not perfection. (laughs) That is pretty much my everyday. And every day I make my list of everything I want to get done that day. And, And I never, ever get anywhere close. But I make progress. You know, and now I have I have them color-coded. The things that are on fire are red. I, like, it used to be this huge chunk of red at the top. And the problem is that, like, as I'm hacking away at the things that are in, in red, the things that are in yellow are starting to turn red. Um, but but I, I will say that like the, the section... So there's always a section of red every day. And this, this, the section of red is getting smaller over time. And that, to me, 
is progress, not perfection. Now for this week's challenge. No, wait, this is the last episode of Out on the Wire. Now for your ongoing life challenge. Make your work. Keep making it. Find support. Take control of how you'll make money from your work. Make more work. Get it done. If you're feeling overwhelmed at the prospect of heading out to make your creative work without a plan, you're in luck. I will be offering a creative project planning challenge several times this year. To find out more, go to jessicaable.com slash project planning. That's one word, project planning. And get yourself unstuck. The Out on the Wire working group is not closing down. If you want to find a wonderful group of colleagues who can offer timely feedback on your work and teach you by example, join us. You join the working group by going to my website at jessicaable.com slash podcast and signing up to receive my newsletter. That's jessicaable.com slash podcast. I'll have show notes on this episode, including links to The Herd, Sheldon, Drive, Stripped, and Kelly Sue's various books and channels, and information on how you can get her Bitches Get Shit Done text blasts on your phone on my site at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can also get show notes emailed to you if you're on the newsletter. We've put together a package of all our original interviews, including the complete Jacob Lewis, Dave Kellett, and Kelly Sue DeConnick interviews from this episode, along with music by Matt Madden, into a bonus package. If you've gotten value from this show and you want to support us going forward, you can buy this complete package for $10 or more if you like. And there's a link to buy the bonus pack on my website at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can find me on Twitter at JCCAble. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with music contributed by Matt Madden. Made with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And one last thing. It's been a pleasure and an honor to make this show for you and with you. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap.